It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 109, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Andrew Mefford farms at One Drop Farm in Cornville, Maine with his wife, Anne, where they sell produce and transplants at Farmer's Market to a multiple farm CSA and to local restaurants and food stores. Andrew is also the editor and publisher of Growing for Market magazine, having taken over that business from Lynn Mazinski last year, the magazine's 25th year in publication. Andrew is also the author of the just-published Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook, a fantastic new guide to growing things under protected culture. This is a really cool book, short on the rah-rah and long on the real how-to, and Andrew really lets his plant nerd flag fly in the book and in our conversation today. Much of our conversation focuses on the lesson that Andrew took from his experience working at large-scale greenhouse growers as the tomato trials guy at Johnny's Selected Seeds, and how he applied those lessons to his own high-tunnel operation. We talk extensively about how to take on some advanced greenhouse growing techniques without getting too deep into the weeds. Andrew digs into his opinions about the return on investment for increased management in the greenhouse, and he provides some practical tips for extending spring production in the high tunnel, as well as for growing transplants for protected culture. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com and by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com and by Farm Commons. Strong, resilient, sustainable farm businesses are built on a solid legal foundation. Farm Commons provides practical legal resources to help farmers understand and respond to how the law affects them free guides, and tutorials available online at farmcommons.org. Andrew Mefford, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm a, I'm a big fan, and, and uh, happy anniversary to you. I know this must be an anniversary of sorts that I, I think you started two years ago in February of 2015, and I know you just had your 100th show, so congratulations, and I'm glad to be a part of uh the beginning of year number three of, of the uh, Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. And of course, I mean, but you know, part of the show in more than one way, because you guys have been sponsors in the past and you're, and you're currently sponsoring the show and helping us get our transcripts out. And we, we really appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, yeah, actually, I was, I was looking at your website and um, the transcript is such a nice feature to be able to offer. I'm, I'm so glad that we could help with that transcript sponsorship and help, uh, help with that feature for your show. Thanks so much. So we're, we're going to come back and talk about Growing for Market magazine a little bit more. But I want to start by having you situate us with your farm, One Drop Farm there in Cornville, Maine. Yeah, so we have a, this farm here in, in central Maine, and um, we have been um, certified organic since we, we started up here in, um, in early 2009. But before that, we started the farm in central Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, we thought that's where we were going to be, and the land that we were farming on was sold. And so um, what we did is we started apprenticing again, I should say apprenticing, because uh, we, the way that we learned how to farm is by working on other people's farms. And so my, my family's farm in, in central Pennsylvania was, was one of my entry points into farming. Um, it, it's one of the things that got me interested. And so uh, the first time I worked on a farm for a season full time was was on a farm that was just just around the corner, so to speak, from from uh, my family's farm in, in South Central Pennsylvania, and uh, so I worked a season on on this farm, 
and I liked it. And so uh, we uh, took off across the country and um, worked a season on a farm in California. And then we worked up in Washington State and came back east. And, and uh, I worked for a season on the research farm for Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And, and it was after that that we, we did start our farm in, uh, in Pennsylvania for the first time under the same name, One Drop Farm. And um, so we had to go on hiatus for that, from that. And, and what we did is we started working for other people for two more years because once we had started our own farm, we realized that there were a few things that we wish we'd learned the first time around. And so we just went right back to apprenticing. <laughs> we, we got a job on a farm in upstate New York, and then we got a job on a farm on the coast of Maine. And that's what brought us to Maine. While we were, while we were working uh, on the farm in Maine, we realized we weren't going to make it back to Pennsylvania. And we really wanted to, to get back to farming for ourselves. And, and it was while we were working on the coast of Maine that we saw this farm here in central Maine that we thought would be pretty perfect for what, what we were wanting to do. And we were lucky enough to, to move here at the end of 2008. And so we've been here um, ever since then. So how many acres are you guys farming there? Our operation has changed uh, quite a bit over the years. Um, up until a few years ago, we have about 5,000 square feet under greenhouses and hoop houses. And then we have about two acres of field that we had um, plowed up and cultivated for, for vegetable production in the field. And for, for most of the years that we've been here in central Maine, we sold at our local farmer's market, which is the Skowhegan Farmer's Market, and we sold to a variety of, of what I call the local wholesalers. So um, natural food stores and some um, a multi-farm CSA and some other um, local wholesaling opportunities. And so we were doing certified organic produce. And when I, when I, I, I left Johnny's, in fact, my last day at Johnny's uh, was Friday the 13th of November of 2015 because I knew I was going to be taking over as editor of Growing for Market Magazine. And so I talked with Annie, my wife, and said that I just, I had no idea how much time I'd be able to devote to the farm going into this new, this new responsibility. And so I said, because um, she had really been managing the farm anyway, since I had been working off the farm full time for Johnny Selected Seeds for the previous seven years. So the whole time that we had been here in Maine. And so she wisely, I believe, um, decided to um, switch our business mostly over to seedlings. And, and that's an interesting story, too, because there's a there's a woman named Amy LeBlanc, who is colloquially known around here as the main tomato lady. You may know there's there's also a main potato lady who sells uh, potato seedlings. And um, so so um, Amy LeBlanc of White Hill Farm, she she was known as the main tomato lady because she had this amazing catalog of seedlings. She's the place where you would go to get all the heirlooms and the unusual varieties and she had varieties that she had collected herself from Italy and over other countries over the years. And so she was getting to the point um, where she wanted to cut back. She, she has not, um, she's still doing um, seedlings herself, but she just wanted to serve her local community. And so, so it was really interesting timing because around the same time that I, I got offered the opportunity to take over growing for market, uh, we got offered the opportunity to take over her seedling business. And seedlings are already something that we, we did a lot of. 
just because that they're great for the early season cash flow. And we do live in a very rural area. And so a lot of people may not come buy vegetables from us at the farmer's market, but we figured, hey, um, at least we can sell them the plants. And so so what we did was, was go from mostly growing vegetables with um, some seedling business at the beginning of the year to running the farm as a seasonal nursery. And now we do a lot more seedlings. I don't even know what what how many times we um increased the um the amount of seedlings that we grow but but we we have uh we've grown the seedling size of the business in order to take over her customers and and we've cut back on the amount of produce that we do in fact we last year for the first time we did not do commercial produce which of course we what we did is we used the greenhouses and hoop houses we filled them with with seedlings and then and then once everybody's planted their garden and cleaned us out, we plant produce for ourselves. But the last year and going into this year, we're not selling produce right now just because getting on top of the uh, the, the magazine and um, and also I was writing and editing the book over the last year. We were really just too, too busy. And so this has been a good way to balance things out for us since there's a lot of early season uh, labor, but then it's not as it's not as as busy in the middle of the season as, as growing produce commercially. And you took over as the owner of growing for market magazine. That's been two years ago now. No, it's been just over one year. I took, we just took it over at the beginning of uh, January of 2016. Okay. So it's, it's been barely, barely a year now. So that's, that still feels like a new thing for me. I'm definitely getting settled in there, but, um, but it's, it's pretty new as far as, as, uh, as endeavors go. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved with, with Growing for Market. Because Lynn Bazinski, the, the former owner of the magazine, she's out in Kansas. You know, many years ago when we were getting started with farming, well, one of our the ways that we began to learn about farming was my father-in-law got us a, uh, a beginner special for, from Growing for Market, which if, if you know what that is, it's, it's like the paper version of, of archive access. It's, it's like 10 years worth of... Um, of printed copies bound into yearly volumes. And um, so he got us that, and we just found it such a, a treasure trove of information. And I had actually gone to school for journalism, um, thinking that I would be either a journalist or a, 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 a nonfiction writer. And and I got more, more interested in farming, partially because I, I started getting some journalism jobs, and I was just spending all my time inside, and, and I realized that that was just really stifling for me. And also, also I, we had this farm in the family that I got interested in. And, and also I just was interested in providing it, being a part of providing a healthy food supply for people. And so, so that's what led me down that route. But knowing about growing for market, I had always had in the back of my mind, Oh, gee, I'd love to, to write an article for growing for market. So for me, it's really kind of funny to, to have former aspirations of, of, well, maybe writing an article for it and now now having taken it over. And um, I can't remember exactly when I met Lynn, but I traveled a lot when I worked for Johnny's. And so uh, at some point I crossed paths with Lynn, who I should know is the founder of Growing for Market. She started it uh, all by herself 25 years ago. And so... Um, and so, uh, in fact, 2016 was the 25th year. And so she had been doing a long time and had started it. And um, 
So whenever I met Lynn, I, I pitched an article to her about something or another. I think it was about picking tomato varieties or something, because I had always had it in my the back of my head to, to write for the magazine. And so I started writing for the magazine and had had maybe 10 or 15 articles in the magazine over the last five years or so. When she, um, some point in 2015, in early 2015, she asked me if I would be interested in taking it over from her. And um, what she told me is that uh, it was a small publication like we have. She thought it was important for the person who is editing the magazine to also be a writer for the magazine, which if you're familiar with the publication, she she wrote a number of articles. She wrote pretty regularly for the magazine over the years, which I should say I have not really done um, in the year that I've I've taken it over just because I've I've been so busy. There's just all the first year business takeover stuff that you would have have to take over, whether you were taking over a farm or a widget company or a magazine. And then um, there's just getting a good flow of articles coming and, and keeping in touch with everybody. And, and just, just learning how to run the magazine has really, has really kept me busy uh, over the last year. Plus, I was editing my book at the same time. So so I've just this last year has just been crazy for me. It's it's been it's been so many good things, but it's been it's been a lot of a lot of things all, all together. So you mentioned that you were working for Johnny's and traveling around the country. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were doing for them? Uh, yeah, sure, I'd love to. Um, that was a great job uh, because I'm definitely a plant nerd at heart. Um, so so um, shortly after we moved to uh, to Central Maine. Um, Johnny's every year we have this common ground fair which people people in the northeast might be familiar with in, in fact the common ground fair was my first introduction to Maine when I was working on this farm down in Pennsylvania um, a friend of mine was like you gotta get up to the common ground fair it's like it's like a country fair but everything's organic and um, and so I don't even know what year that was but uh, um, I'd never been to Maine before and so I just um, I just threw a tent in the back of my station wagon and drove up to Maine because if you volunteer for the common ground ferry, you can, you can have a free camping spot. So what I did is I hiked it up to Maine and, um, camped out. I worked in the kitchen every night so I could go to all the great, uh, farming presentations during the day. And so I never thought, oh yeah, I'm going to move to Maine. But, but when that opportunity presented itself, I was already familiar, um, and and that was kind of a, a nice introduction to Maine. So, but back back to the connection with Johnny's. Every so the Common Ground Fair is this huge deal in Maine. I think they have sixty thousand people um, who come or something like that. And so in in a state with only about a million people like Maine, that's it seems like everybody's there. So every year around Common Ground Fair time, Johnny's Johnny's is not that far away from where Common Ground Fair is, and so they have a big sale every fall to, to draw all the people who are who are going to the Common Ground Fair. And so that was uh, that was the year that we had we had just moved to our farm, and so we were trying to reestablish our farm. We, in fact, we trucked all of our equipment up from Pennsylvania. We had never sold it, and so so it's not like we were starting with with a hoe and nothing else. But um, we we were in the process of reestablishing our farm after having having worked for other people for two years. And so the, the Johnny's, uh, both the, the warehouse retail store and their research farm is only about half an hour away from where we relocated to in central Maine, which, which turned out to be extremely serendipitous because um, that first year on, on our way to the common ground fair, we stopped in 
And um, the former manager of the store named Joanne, she's a very um, outgoing person. And so within a few minutes of stopping into the store, she had our life story and she was like, oh, well, well, you should work for Johnny's. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we both started out, my wife Anne and I, we both started out uh, working in the call center. We were commercial sales in, inbound reps. So we are the people who... If you're if you're a commercial grower and you call Johnny's, we're the person on the other end of the line that says, "Hello, thank you for calling Johnny's. Um, how can I help you?" And so they, they actually did segment their the inbound reps. They wanted people with commercial growing experience to deal with the commercial farmers, just so we could help with planning or or varieties or whatever might come up over the course of a seed order. So that that very first winter that we were in Maine, the winter of 08 into um, 2009. I was I was doing that work, um, working as a commercial inbound sales rep at Johnny's, thinking that that I would go back to farming full time in the spring. And over the course of that winter, the job for the um, tomato researcher became available. And I, I love growing all the vegetables and, and flowers too, but tomatoes have always just been my they're like my my power crop, you know. Tomatoes are, are my favorite thing. And so when I found out that the job of, of the tomato um, researcher was available, I thought, well, um, that seems like that this is an opportunity that's only going to knock once in life. And plus, we were in the, in the process of restarting our farm. And I realized that um, having an off-farm income would, would really help us get it up and going again. And as by the tomato researcher, I, sh- I should mention um, the way a lot of seed companies do it, and including Johnny's, is they have people who run the trials. And so technically, my job title was, was a trial technician. Um, so basically, I ran variety trials. So it was, it was my job to be aware of all the new tomato varieties that were being developed out there, get them into the our trials, which we had trials there in the town of Albion in Maine, and also had trials off-site in various locations. And I worked on other crops too, uh, but as the longer I was there, we were just seeing more and more interest in protected culture. And by protected culture, I mean greenhouses and hoop houses, okay? Because sometimes when I use the word hoop house, people think I'm only talking about unheated production. Sometimes when I say greenhouse, people think I only mean heated. So what I'm trying to say is that we were seeing a lot of interest in uh, in all forms of protected culture. And, and I worked in the, this into the subtitle of my book. So it's called the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook, Organic Vegetable Production Using Protected Culture, because this term protected culture is used a lot in Europe to mean both, um, both greenhouse and hoop house. And so it's not used very much here. And so I'm trying to get that into usage by using it a lot, protected culture. Um, So so when I when I started out at Johnny's, I was mostly doing field field vegetables, and, and they would change from time to time. But I was always working on tomatoes and cucumbers and, and a various rotating host of other, other vegetables, depending on what other people were doing. But we were seeing so much interest in protected culture, um, I think partially because of the NRCS hoop house program, which was helping growers get grants to build hoop houses, and also just because of the interest in local food. You know, uh, I say that I'm, I'm interested in protected culture because the more that you can extend your season, uh, the more you can you can stretch out local food season, right? Because um, if you think about that period from 2009 even until now, I feel like there was a great growing interest in in local foods, and so growers had demand. They had people who wanted to buy their stuff. They just had to figure out how to meet that demand. And so I think that 
that um, extending the season in, in greenhouses and hoop houses were, were a very important part of, uh, of increasing the supply of locally grown produce and flowers to, to meet the demand. And so, so that's what I was doing at Johnny's. I was running trials it, it literally to plant hundreds of tomato varieties and other crops. But there's more breeding for tomatoes than, than most other vegetables. Um, just because of the economic importance of tomatoes, there's a lot of energy that goes into tomato breeding. So I would run these trials with two and sometimes even 300 varieties of field tomatoes. And then I would run a corresponding um, greenhouse or hoop house tomato trial with fewer varieties just because it's a more specialized market. And, and that really scratched an itch for me because I think most, most gardeners or farmers uh, open up their seed catalogs and, and they get the um, inclination. They want to plant one of everything, right? And so uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I, I basically got to do that. You know, my, my job was to seek out every, every variety possible, plant them all that made sense. There, there's probably not enough space in the world to plant all the tomato varieties that are out there, but I had to determine the ones that would be of interest to small, medium-sized farmers and gardeners and grow all the ones um, that, that they would be interested in and grow them side to side and compare them. And that's, that's really the only way to tell um, how good something is, is to, to grow it next to its competitors and then, um, and then evaluate it. And so that was an awesome job for me just because I'm such a plant nerd. Um, I could uh, just grow all these different varieties and, and try to evaluate them. And, and the other side of my job there was to, um, to troubleshoot um, growers problems. Okay. So I was supposed to stay on the cutting edge of, of, uh, of whatever the market farm technology was at the time in order to be able to answer, answer people's questions about it. And so that was a great place for me to be because on the one hand, I was running a farm half an hour away, a market farm where we were doing just that. We were selling produce and then uh, uh, you know, my day job, I was running trials and I was getting access to all kinds of interesting researchers and commercial growers and things. And so well, a lot of times what would happen is somebody would ask me a question that I didn't know the answer to, but I had, a, I had an amazing array of, of people at my disposal that I could go ask. And so, in, in fact, that's one of the, of the ways that the book came about, because I felt like I got a lot of questions just over and over again. And, um, and we have a saying at the farmer's market. We certainly didn't coin it. I don't know who did. Um, but one of the things we say at the farmer's market is if you get the same question over and over again, it's time to make a sign. And so right. the way that I took that from a, a farming information perspective was if I got the same question over and over and over again uh, from a grower, it's probably time to write a book, right? Because that's, that must identify a common area of that A, people want to know about and B, that they don't know about. Um, if you get the question over and over again, um, that information must either not be out there or must not be um, satisfying people. So um, I, I had the thought in my head a few times um, after answering these grower questions that I would get over and over again, oh, wow, somebody should really write a book about this stuff. Somebody should write this stuff down before I realized, well, maybe I should just start doing that. And so that, that's, that's in large part where the book came from. I have to say, this is, I mean, this is a great book. You know, I remember back in when I started at my, at Rock Spring Farm, my own farm in 1999 and, and the early 2000s, there was some good information about organic production on, for doing like winter production, for doing the salad crops. But there was mostly just introductory stuff as far as the, the other, the summer crops go, the things that actually make, made us the most money. 
you know, and yet, you know, we were turning to sources about the hydroponic uh, production. We weren't, you know, that's, that's what we had to look at because there just, there weren't technical manuals available for doing organic production of summer crops. And I, I mean, I had to look over this book and this is fantastic. I mean, it's really, I love how that it's so short on the rah, rah, you can do it. And it's long on the real how to's the nuts and bolts of how do I actually produce greenhouse tomatoes like a professional grower instead of like somebody who's growing some tomatoes in a hoop house, you know? Yeah, exactly. That I want it to be an extremely practical book. You know, I realize that's what, that's what growers need is that when, when they have a question to go answer it. And so that's why it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a, um, a, a comprehensive rundown on every single crop. What it is, is the details on eight crops that, that is what keep most of the greenhouses out there in business. In fact, the, the sub subtitle is best practices for the most profitable crops. And the way that I came up with that, that group of crops is because over and over again, I would go to commercial greenhouses and they were growing eight crops. They were growing, and I, I divide them into two groups. I, I have a, a vining fruiting group and a leafy group. And so in the vining fruiting group, everybody's growing tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, and eggplant. And on the leafy side, everybody's growing lettuce, mixed greens, microgreens or herbs, predominantly basil. And so just just that selection of crops, I wanted to help, um, especially people who haven't grown in a, a greenhouse or hoop house before, that should put them on, on the trail to, these, these are really the things to be considering. If you just bought a hoop house or, or if you're trying to fine tune your production, these are the eight things that are, that are most likely to pay off that expense and pay you back for the investment in, in that, that protected space. And so, so yeah, I wanted to be very, very specific um, because, because what was happening is, is, so I'd worked on farms, right? In Pennsylvania, California, Washington state, Virginia, upstate New York and Maine. And so almost, in fact, I think all of the farms that I worked on, except for maybe one had, had a greenhouse or a hoop house. Most of the farms that I worked on, and, and, and one of the other great things about working at Johnny's was I got to go on a lot of farm tours, which, which I love, just going and meeting people and seeing, seeing the different ways that they grow. Because uh, to a great degree, what keeps growing interesting for me is that everyone does it a little bit differently. And what I like to say is that there are as many ways to farm as there are farmers. And so um, that was just great for me to be able to go visit people. But after I started getting access to these research greenhouses and big commercial greenhouses and place like, places like that, I realized that most of the smaller growers were basically just growing field style in a hoop house or a greenhouse. And I didn't realize there was any other way to grow until I was exposed to the alternative. I realized that there's this other method that's, that's largely Dutch, that's just totally different. I, you know, I started going to these big commercial greenhouses that were more or less um, growing with the Dutch style. I mean, you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't, that some of these greenhouses that the, the growers were first uh, first generation Dutch. You know, um, they had they had greenhouse publications written in Dutch lying lying around, and they were mostly very open to me, and I was able to ask them some great questions. In fact, one of the analogies that I talk about in the book is about how in uh, most years, including 2015, which is the year we have the most recent statistics for. The United States is the number one agricultural exporter in the world, and the Dutch are number two. 
This is typical. Most years, this is a pattern. The U.S. is number one, and the Dutch are second. It's comparing apples and oranges, though, because Holland is about two-thirds the size of West Virginia. That's an analogy that I want smaller growers to take away here, because how how a, a part of the world that's two-thirds the size of West Virginia can come in second to the United States in, in agricultural exports is, is a message. It means you don't have to be big. To, to, to get a lot done, to, to be productive. All you have to be is smart and efficient. And um, in, in the way that Dutch uh, come in second to the United States is exactly the way that I, I want um, smaller growers to, you know, take over more of the market share of, of the, the food that's being produced. You know, the way that I look at it, most of the food that's eaten in this country travels a very long distance. And um, that's, that's one of the changes that I want to see in the world is that more of our food uh, come from from closer to to where it's eaten. So the way the way the Dutch do this, which is the way that I want local growers to do this, is they they are small, but they plant very densely and they focus on high value crops, vegetables, leafy greens, and flowers. And so so that's one way that I can see small growers who don't have a lot of acreage getting a lot done and being profitable and staying in business. So tell me what's different when you go into a Dutch greenhouse versus the average market farmer's high tunnel production? You know, Chris, the, the, the most basic thing, if, if you told me that your, your line was going to cut out in one minute and I have, I have a minute to tell you anything that I'd like to pass on, what I'd like to say is to plant more densely. You know, the first time I ever went into a Dutch-style greenhouse, the, the plants are tall because they, they build taller greenhouses because a, a larger air mass is more efficient to, uh, to heat, which is counterintuitive, right? They used to build greenhouses really low. In fact, I'm, I'm just over six feet, and some of these, some of these old greenhouses, I can almost can't walk around in there without bumping my head because the old thinking was that you build as small of a structure as possible so you have as small an area as possible to heat. What they've realized is that bigger structures are actually more efficient because once you get that big air mass up to temperature, it's more efficient to keep a larger air mass at at temperature. And so, for one thing, they're really tall, but, but the, the thing that's really useful for smaller growers is they're very densely planted. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's a vining fruiting crop like the tomatoes and cubes or the, the leafy crops, but, but the basis of everything, if, if, if you know, people are listening to this interview and don't take anything else away from this, it, I would say plant more densely because um, it, 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 and it's, it's a no-brainer, right? You plant more densely and... Um, and you get more plants in a certain space, and you'll you'll get more yield out. You know, the the most basic change I could say is people, if you're if you're growing single rows, switch to double rows. You can take uh, whatever crop you're growing at whatever spacing you're currently comfortable with, and if you switch it from one single row on a bed to two two rows on a bed, well, obviously that that halves the amount of of your protected space that is is devoted to plants, and it doubles the amount of plants in in your house. Okay, so a, a very a very specific example from my own production is when we started out, uh, most of our houses are, are 30 feet wide. So we would run five beds uh, for dividing fruiting crops, so it's like tomatoes and cucumbers. So we would run five beds with a single row of plants down each bed. And what we ended up with after trying all these ideas is the same number of beds, okay? We went from five beds with a single row down the middle to five beds with two rows um, spaced out two feet apart down each bed. And so in, in, in doing that, 
along with with the other stuff uh, that I talk about in the book, we went from getting about a ton of tomatoes out of one of these these tunnels to two tons. I mean, we literally doubled our yield by um, by making these changes. And spacing is the basis. You know, the the bottom line is just getting more plants in there. Now, every all the other stuff that I talk about in the book supports the spacing. And that's where you get into pruning to promote airflow and having horizontal airflow fans to promote airflow. And so that's that's one good way to look at it. The basis of the whole thing is very dense planting. And then a lot of the other information is supporting it so that you get the most out of out of that spacing. And, and it doesn't just apply to divining fruit and crops. You know, people are out there thinking, well, no, I grow a lot of salad crops or, or greens or anything. You could apply this principle to any crop on the leafy crops. If you can grow a more compact framed lettuce uh, that you can plant at 8 inches instead of 12, or even go down to 6 inches instead of 8, if your market will will accept a a mini head lettuce, you can get a geometrically higher number of plants into a a given bed if you can just tighten up your plant spacing, which might involve switching varieties. You know, that's, that's why... One of the, the things that the um, the leafy crops are bred for when they're bred for a greenhouse or hoop house growing is compact um, compact framed plants. You can either get grow uh, black seeded Simpson or something and get uh, a pound or or a pound and a half of lettuce into a uh, 12 inch spacing, or you can grow some really compact uh, butterhead variety or something and get a pound of lettuce into eight eight inches. And um, you know that's a little chart that I did in the book. It's super simple. I mean, anybody could do it themselves. It's just take one of your beds, do the math on how many how many plants you get at a one foot spacing, and then do the math on how many plants at eight inch spacing and six inch spacing. And then um, if you're heating a greenhouse, multiply it by ten, and that's 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 when you really see the difference. Um, it's, it's so much. You get so many more plants in at eight or six inches. Um, each each bed you grow is more profitable, and then if you're heating a greenhouse, you might actually get uh, nine or ten cycles of crops, and so, so you multiply that difference by ten, and it, it's it's a huge difference by the end of the year. And th- you know, those are the kinds of things that greenhouse growers do just the just the basics to be more profitable. Although, I mean, this this book it's, it's 250 pages of, of greenhouse information, which is is really nice for me because a lot of times I would. I would go and have an hour at a conference or something, or I would get a chance to talk to growers, and I would feel like you just can't do anything but scratch the surface in the area. And so that, that's that's one of the other reasons that I like the longer format of the book because um, you can tell I'm, I'm very passionate about it, and I really I really enjoy learning about it. And there's just there's just so much there. There's no way you can you can get to it all in um, in in uh, in an hour or anything like that. But there's some there's some really basic stuff in there like like denser spacing, um, you know, using using light covering in the bottom of a greenhouse to help reflect more light and keep the temperatures cool, using pulse irrigation to to prevent splitting in tomatoes and um, and and, and reduce root diseases, um, insect netting, record keeping, you know. So there's some very basic stuff, and then there's there's also some very advanced stuff. I spent a lot of time in the book on grafting because uh, I probably got more questions about grafting than anything else while I was at Johnny's. And, and that um, partially hint at the complexities of grafting, but also uh, that's that's one thing I can't talk enough about. Grafting has, has helped my tomato production immensely. So as far as more advanced topics, there's the grafting, there's talking about pre-day and pre-night treatments um, on fruiting crops, crop steering, carbon dioxide augmentation. So this, this book is really 
you know, what I wanted was for someone to be able to buy this book as a beginner and almost learn with the book. If you've never had a greenhouse or hoop house before and you just want to answer the question, how many lettuce plants should I put in this bed or how densely should I plant my tomatoes? You know, it's there for you. And then as you get to be a more accomplished grower and move into the, the medium and advanced, advanced topics that, that you're probably not going to be doing free night treatments and, and uh, generative steering on your plants in your first year. But if you get a few years under your belt and really want to dial in your production, those are the kind of things you want to do. You know, I tried to kind of unload um, as much as I possibly could the information that's really specific about all of these crops to, to protected growing. I'm really interested. I mean, you, you've mentioned the, these, these two topics a couple of times, and they're things that I, I feel silly saying this, but I, they're not things that I had heard of before. Um, you talked about, you talked about pre-night and pre-day treatments. You talked about generative steering. Can you tell us a little bit more about those tools and, and how those work? Absolutely. I'd, I'd, I'd love to. In fact, this idea of pre-night treatments, the two ideas are, are tied together. And I think you're right, Chris. I think, I think most people have never heard of this. They've never heard of pre-day, pre-night treatments and crop steering. But if, if you look in, in all the, the greenhouse literature that's coming out of Holland, and, uh, you know, and I, I would say I, I do think that Europe is ahead of us on a lot of this stuff. A lot of the literature that I read to be able to, um, to write this book is, is coming out of Europe. And so I'm actually g- really glad that you asked about pre-night treatments and crop steering because this is a subject that, that makes my inner plant geek happy. It'll make more sense once I've explained it, but uh, pre-night treatments are part are, are one of the main techniques for steering. And what, what I mean by steering is that if you've got your, your greenhouse, uh, particularly your greenhouse production, because um, it, it helps to have heat to do these things, if you've got it pretty well dialed in, really the icing on the cake is steering. And what we mean by that is if plants are too vegetative, if they're too leafy, um, they're making leaves at the expense of fruit production. And if you think, I don't even know what that is. You do. If you've ever planted a transplant into a compost pile, or if you've ever fertilized, you know what being overly vegetative is. It's when your when your tomato plants, uh, in particular, or fruiting crops in general, when they they have huge, beautiful looking leaves, and the fruit is really small and late to develop, that is over overly vegetative. And I I saw this personally in my own hoop houses before I really even knew what it, it was, and so. That's part of the value of writing about this, I think, is it's the kind of thing, if you're an experienced grower, you've probably seen your plants in an excessively vegetative state, and you may not have even known what to, to, to call it, and you probably didn't know what to do with, do about it. So steering is, the, is what they call moving your plants back to the way that, to a state of balance. Since I would say uh, the, two, the two extremes on the continuum are for plants to either be vegetative making too much too much of the leafy parts of the plant or generative, making too much of the fruiting parts of the plant at the expense of the long-term health of the plant. So as with so many things in life, what you're really shooting for is balance. But if you don't know how to achieve that balance, you're probably not going to get there. And so I have a lot of other suggestions in the book. There are a lot of things you can do to, to try and create balanced plants. But one of the most dramatic and one of the most useful steering tools is to use heat in a greenhouse and, and use a pre-night treatment. Now, now this is where this is where I love the greenhouse research, and it just it just tickles my inner plant nerd because um, once they they realize there's there's so much energy going into tomato production in particular and, and fruiting crops in general, they realize that the warmest part of the plants um, keep respiring uh, longer than the colder plant part of the plants, 
at um, when the temperature d- drops at the end of the of the day when the, the sun is going down. Okay, and that should really be a no-brainer um, because if you think about it, the, the the warmer parts of the plants are respiring faster. And so you could say, well, that's that's an interesting plant fact. So what? Well, uh, greenhouse researchers figured out how to use that because because what you can do is I tell growers instead of I think most growers gradually let the temperature fall at night to a, to a lower nighttime temperature. Either that or they just shut up, shut the vents up and try and keep the temperature from falling as, as slowly as possible to conserve as much heat as possible. But the way that you can drive more energy to the fruit in your in your plants, and it actually can, can improve the flavor too, okay? Um, this, this is one of the few techniques that improves both production and flavor is by letting the temperature drop very very suddenly at night. In fact, you know, my, my advice for growers who are interested in doing this is leave your vents open um, until you get to a particular set point. And, you know, what that temperature is varies a little bit based on the crop. So, and, and that's where also um, having some degree of automation in the greenhouse can help because what you can do is say, instead of just shutting the vents up right before the sun goes down to conserve as much heat as possible, if someone wanted to do this and, and make their plants more more generative, make, make the plants um, focus on fruit more, which should result in a higher yield, is leave the vents open, set up a lower a lowest set point on your thermostat, and so that when the, the environment in the greenhouse reaches this level, then the vents close and the heaters come on to prevent the temperature going below your set point. And so what this does is you will have to spend a little bit more energy on heating the greenhouse because because you lose more heat than if you shut the vents up promptly. But it, it actually pays for itself in increased increased fruit production and quite possibly in increased flavor because because what happens you know this is the part that that I think is interesting. So what happens is is because because the leaves and the vine of the fruit uh, have so much less water in them they have so much less mass right and of course water. Um, changes temperature more slowly than the air, and smaller masses of water change temperature more quickly than than larger masses. And so, what you what happens in the evening is that the, the air temperature cools down really quickly, and that makes the leaves and stems cool down pretty quickly. And what are the largest masses of of water in your greenhouse? Are the fruits. So the fruits stay warm, and that means when the fruits stay warm, they're pulling uh, what we call the assimilate, basically the the food that the plant has made through photosynthesis throughout the day. So as long as they're warm, they're still saying, feed me, you know, send me, send me the sugars. So how that improves your tomato flavor is that, that at the end of the day, that, that clears out your plant. It makes the, the fruits pull all the assimilates and all the sugars that are in the plant. And then um, that's how it makes them more, more generative because um, you choose which part of the plant is getting the energy. And, and likewise, the pre-day treatment is, it doesn't have to do with steering, but but what it means is that uh, it basically means you heat up the greenhouse earlier than the sun does. And so once again, this is counterintuitive in a way because it means um, a lot of growers would try and save money and not, you know, use, use a minimal amount of heat until the sun comes up and say, all right, well, the, the sun will warm my greenhouse up in the morning, right? Right. Well, yeah, that's true, but it's also going to make a lot of condensation in your greenhouse because once again, what happens if your greenhouse is cool overnight, plus the plants are respiring, so you probably got the vents shut up. So there's, they're respiring, um, they're transpiring moisture out into your greenhouse environment, which you have closed up. So you're, you're getting this massive air inside of your greenhouse that's getting more and more humid over the course of the evening. And then all of a sudden the sun hits your greenhouse. If, 
if you're a greenhouse grower out there, you've probably been in your greenhouse when the sun comes up because you're working hard and you know that it, it flips, it almost flips a switch. It's just, it's just, that temperature is just going to spike. And so the opposite effect happens in the morning time um, than, than when they're, when your greenhouse is cooling down at night. Whereas the, okay, so the sun hits the greenhouse, the, the air warms up really quickly and then the plants stay cold because they're full of water. Plus, you have this humid air mass. It's the perfect setup for condensation because because what happens is then you get all this warm, humid air surrounding these cold plants. And if you've been in your greenhouse in the morning and it looks like it's raining, yeah, that's what's going on. Is you you've created uh, the perfect conditions for condensation. And uh, as you may know, um, there are a lot of foliar diseases and all the rocks and molds and things are promoted by condensation and wet leaves. In fact, I'd say that's. That's one of the biggest advantages of having a greenhouse or a hoop house. So that, that applies whether you have heat or not. One of your biggest advantages as a protected grower is just keeping the rain off. You know, I mean, heat is important, and, and that's, that's the first thing everybody thinks about as well. It's warmer. I'd say it's, it's, it's just as important um, to, to, to keep everything dry because all, all our plants have leaves. Keeping them dry is going to keep them, them healthier. So, so as, what I mean by pre-day treatment is that I – I recommend people about two hours before the sun is going to come up to set their greenhouse uh, their greenhouse thermostats to start ramping temperatures up. So whatever your desired daytime temperature is, it's there when the sun comes up. So this is where you, you base your planning uh, based on what time sunrise is, and you count backwards two hours and just ramp the temperature up. So let's say, you know, if people ask me, I want to grow tomatoes. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to do the whole complicated temperature schedule. Just like I just want to pick a daytime temperature and a nighttime temperature. You could do worse than to set your nighttime temperature at 65 and your daytime temperature for 75. So let's say let's say people knew knew they wanted to, their their greenhouse to be 75 degrees during the day. I would say ramp it up starting starting two hours before sunrise. Ramp it up so that it at uh, at sunrise it's 75 degrees. That's an oversimplification. Every crop that I deal with, there's there's a temperature graph, and we deal with high and low temperatures and, and how how that ideal climate should be to make that each crop ideally happy. But also, not everybody wants to get that complicated. A lot of people just want you know just want a nighttime number and a daytime number, and that's one way you can still do some of these more advanced techniques without getting too deep in the weeds of of like you know, what temperature at this time and everything, just knowing that, just knowing that you could heat your greenhouse up before the sun comes up and, and avoid, avoid a lot of your disease problems would be a huge help to a lot of growers. Okay. With that, we're going to stop here. We're going to get a word, quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Andrew Mefford from Growing for Market and One Drop Farm in Cornville, Maine. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible through the perennial support provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost Potting Soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm. And we grew great transplants with it. And I mean really, really, really great transplants year after year after year. And we save time, money, and management hassles compared to mixing our own. At a time in the organic movement, we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the organic bandwagon. Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making a great organic potting soil. One thing I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year, and in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. And through the perennial support of BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need. With PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, the flail mower, the power harrow, 
rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way, way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind the BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I've spent most of the time thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. And we're back with Andrew Mefford from Growing for Market Magazine and One Drop Farm in Cornville, Maine. Andrew, before the break, we were talking about some fairly technical stuff having to do with, with steering your crops, using particularly using temperature as a way to, to help you know, balance out the fruiting and the vegetative growth in, a, in something like a tomato crop or a cucumber crop. And you were talking about you know, heating up the greenhouse before the sun comes up. You were talking about uh, may, maybe dropping the temperature faster when the sun goes down. Um, but all of these things... As I'm thinking back on my hoop house experience, and I felt like I was a fairly sophisticated uh, high tunnel grower, and we had pretty high tech greenhouses, but you know we were up there rolling the sides up and down by hand. Uh, you know it wasn't like we were going to get up at two hours before sunrise and and try to to make something different happen with with how we had things adjusted in our tunnels. Can you talk a little bit about the return on investment for doing some of the automation, or and not even automation, but you know you were talking about denser plantings and therefore having horizontal airflow fans, uh, you know, to move, to move the air around, to keep disease under control. Can you talk about that investment versus what you're going to get for increased yields? Is there, is the ROI there on this stuff? Yes. Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got two things, uh, two ways to address that, Chris. For one thing I'd say, yeah, yeah. The, the, the return on investment is definitely there. I would say that, that growing is, is a continuum and that the fancier greenhouses, which, which I call high-tech greenhouses, they are higher investment in their higher return. We wouldn't have growers out there that were in business if, if they weren't. Um, in fact, the, the places that I learned a lot of these techniques were some very large greenhouses. In fact, um, I had never been in places like this, but while I was at Johnny's, I'd go in the greenhouses that were 10, 20, 40. I've been in, in greenhouse complexes that were 100 acres, which really kind of blows my mind when you think about it, because you go in there and you can't, you can't see the ends of the greenhouse. And, and my, my farm, um, we, you know, we have almost 100 acres on my farm. And so it's, uh, that would be like imagining my whole farm under glass. So they definitely don't stay in business doing all this stuff because they're losing money on it. And I think the real, the real question uh, was, does this stuff translate? In, in fact, I, I've definitely experienced some skepticism from people like, well, that's, that's different, you know, because it's greenhouse or because it's um, they're, because they're big commercial growers. That doesn't translate down to a smaller scale. And, and what I can say about that, Chris, is that if I had not been farming at the same time that I was, um, that I was working at Johnny's and seeing all this stuff, there would be no book because it wouldn't really be interesting just to be just to write, oh, all this stuff exists. The thing that makes this book interesting is that is that I tried it all out on my own farm because I I had some of that skepticism myself. In fact, it was a leap of faith for me to go from my old planting, uh, as I was telling you about, where I, I had five single rows. In fact, I did baby steps. Um, what I did was I went from five single rows to four double rows to five double rows. So it, it was a, it was a a process where I went from 
um, I didn't go straight up to the to the highest planting density that I ended up using, which I will say um, was in a hoop house, and um, and we used a, a very similar, about the same planting density that a lot of big greenhouses use for um, for beefsteak tomatoes, which is I can say pretty quickly um, that would be growing two rows on a bed that are the rows are two feet apart with with plants plants or heads if you're using double headed plants. So plants or heads, your plant spacing should be about a foot apart in the row. So that's two rows of tomatoes two feet apart on a bed with a three-foot walkway. Right there, that's that's your fairly typical uh, big greenhouse beefsteak tomato spacing. Like anything else, it gets more complicated. You may be able to cram cherry tomatoes in even more. Um, there may be ways that you want to change that. But most of my fruiting crop production over the years has been personally in hoop houses. And so that's why I can say with confidence to people, this stuff works because I did it. And um, there are always things that you can do to make things more complex. Like I would say to people, if, you, if you're if you building a hoop house on your farm and you have elect, an electrical hookup and a water hookup close by, they, I would say it definitely pays to do all that stuff. So you can have horizontal airflow fans. In our hoop houses, we have, we have end wall vents that are on a thermostat. So Right, so we could be work, working out in the back 40, and when the sun comes out, we don't have to run back up to the house to open the fence. But I know the original idea behind a hoop house was you have some bows and a layer of plastic and a door. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's really useful. Um, I think that growers can still get a lot of mileage out of uh, just a very simple hoop house. And I'm, you know, I do talk about in the book of which of these techniques apply to greenhouse and which to hoop house. And, and it's, for the most part, it's really simple. It's, the ones that need heat are for greenhouse only, and the ones that don't, uh, most of the techniques in this book could be used by either. And that's why when we were talking about a title for this thing, I was really specific. Uh, I wanted it to be called what it is, the Greenhouse and Hoop House Growers Handbook. Because I feel like the widest group of techniques is available to everybody. For example, like if you wanted to break it down, Chris, and get, give a useful example, uh, what's something that is taken from uh, uh, higher tech growing that could be used in a hoop house with no electricity? Well, the greenhouse pruning and trellising technique. Because I still think that growers in hoop houses with no electricity should be planting more densely. And what they can do without any horizontal airflow fans or anything else to support it is they can prune and trellis. And I would say that pruning and trellising are supporting techniques for the higher planting densities, right? You take the leaves off from the bottom of the plant, which creates airflow down at the base where you're most likely to have dead air and, and, um, and high humidity and diseases forming. And then air can circulate. Tomatoes ripen faster when they're warmer. So you take them out of that little microclimate that forms when the tomatoes are nestled in the leaves. And, um, and the trellising just helps you distribute that plant growth over a longer season, literally um, putting the plant over a, a larger space. And, you know, instead of letting them think about it, if the alternative would be to let them sprawl all over the place, which, which works well for, for bush tomatoes. But if you want to grow a tomato plant for five or six months, you know, you can't just have it sprawling all over its neighbor. So that's why I say there's a lot of what I call plant husbandry, you know, taking care of plants. That's, that's, that's one of the interesting things to me about, about the Dutch system is that it's not like some other farming. Like if you were to look at, look, look at how, uh, how the large-scale row crop farmers stay in business, I think you'd see a lot more about uh, consolidating fields so they're really big. So then you can have a really big tractor uh, that's on GPS, and, and um, you might have a really low margin, but you're producing a lot. 
and and so and you benefit from being able to buy supplies and sell on an economy of scale, right? That's not the scenario that I see, or even would encourage local local or smaller farmers to to uh, to produce in. You know, I, I want local local um, smaller farmers to be getting a decent margin for what they're working hard to produce, and that actually moves over into the greenhouse range, or I should say that that maybe I should say that the larger greenhouses translate better to smaller greenhouses because they are still they're still doing things by hand. It hasn't even even the biggest greenhouse, there's a little bit of mechanization for just transporting things around in the greenhouse, but they still have huge work crews. One of the ways you can see this is that most greenhouse growers that I talk to, their number one cost, people think it's heat, it's labor. I mean almost I can't think of a greenhouse grower that I've talked to that deviates from that. They're paying the people to take care of the plants. And it's it's not unskilled labor. You know, people have to understand how to recognize and, and take care of these plants. And so that's why I'd say that that a lot of the techniques, accepting the things that use heat, uh, translate over into a very simple hoop house. In fact, I was doing a conference the other day and um, talking to people about increasing their spacing. And, and one person said, I'm scared. You know, and I think they're scared of, of getting diseases. By by um by cramming the plants in in tighter, and I you know I say that if you can prune the plants for good airflow, you don't it it would help to have half fans, but if you don't want to have electricity or your site's out in the middle of nowhere, it doesn't mean that this stuff in this book doesn't apply to you. It means there's a lot of other stuff um, that you can do to help your plants um, not get diseased, even in the absence of electricity and, and air circulation. Yeah, because I know that was always a big deal for us in the high tunnel was was if we could keep the diseases under control. We had massive production, whether we were talking about cucumbers or, or sun gold cherry tomatoes. Once the diseases set in, you know, then you're just fighting a losing battle. It was like a rear guard action at that point. Yeah. Well, well and, and, you know, one of the other things that I, I say about that in this book is, is to consider the use of greenhouse varieties. And, of course, that's something I was really steeped in um, while I was working at Johnny's. For a number of years, I was seeing all the new varieties. And um, I have no connection there uh, other than some friends. I'm, I'm not trying to sell seeds, but I always tell people, consider some greenhouse varieties. I say, don't, don't take it from me. Um, try, you know, try some of them out, if, particularly if you're growing a field variety in your protected culture, your tunnel, or your greenhouse. One of the biggest reasons to try the greenhouse varieties is because there's some really specific diseases, like leaf mold comes to mind. I've never seen leaf mold on a tomato out in the field it in, in protected culture all the time. Now on my farm, we had two or three great years. And, and this is really this is really typical. Uh, first couple of years, we grew in our, our high tunnels, um, no leaf mold. And then I think in year number three, we got it right at the end of the season. Every season since, we it comes back because it's spore-based disease that uh, the spores are just in our, our high tunnels now. And so... Um, leaf mold is one of those things you never see leaf mold resistances in field tomatoes and it's one of the most common things that, you know to my mind that separates a greenhouse tomato from a field tomato that they have leaf mold resistance and i'm not saying that everybody has to grow all greenhouse varieties this is one area where i certainly don't take all of my own advice because typically what i would do is i would plant our tunnels uh, roughly 50 50 i would do half uh, greenhouse beef steaks and i would do half heirlooms it's not that I didn't grow any cherries, but in, in my part of central Maine, the season is just so short. I feel like, I feel like it does not return. You're, you're rolling the dice if you're going to make any money at all on large fruited tomatoes out in the, out in the field, just because big beef steaks take so long to get going and they take so long to ripen that, that uh, I feel like 
Um, it's getting cold again where I live by the time they're starting to ripen. And after trying that for a few years, I just totally gave up on the large fruited tomatoes out in the field. So I, I still grow the cherries and grapes out in the field, but um, I just moved all the large fruited production into the hoop house. Let's turn a little bit away from talking about the fruiting crops. And, and I know one of the challenges that people are going to be facing here at about the time this episode goes live is that things, the days are getting longer very quickly in early March. Things are heating up very rapidly in the high tunnel. How, and, and I know, Therefore, a lot of the greens that are there and that you'd like to get, you know, maybe another month's worth of harvest off of before you're coming out with your with your greenhouse tomatoes, your greenhouse cucumbers. What can people do to help mitigate bolting, help keep that from happening for a little bit longer? Well, for one thing, we we were just talking about the greenhouse varieties. Greenhouse varieties are do tend to be selected to be bolt resistant because it's those high temperatures that tend to initiate bolting in all the, all the leafy crops that we don't want to bolt, right? The, the temperature spread, uh, really all, all, all of the leafy crops are, whether they're for field or for greenhouse, are, are selected not to bolt as much as possible, but, but um, especially greenhouse crops, you know, they, they select them especially hard for that because, because your, your temperature spread over a 24-hour period is likely to be a, a bigger spread in the protected culture than, than in the field. Hoop houses, are, hoop houses are really the best example of this because hoop house, you're likely to be getting down to, if not right at uh, the same temperature that your nighttime temperature is. But as soon as the, the sun comes out, it's going to be hotter in there um, than whatever the, the outside temperature is. And so they know that uh, protected culture varieties, or I should say varieties that are bred specifically for protected culture, need to be able to deal with these um, temperature fluctuations and, and hotter temperatures um, than field varieties. And so variety selection would be a big deal. And um, potentially some temperature and humidity management, even if you don't have any heat. Uh, if you are up early in the morning, one thing you could do would be to go out and roll up your sides because that will just reduce the spike um, in, in addition to the humidity in, in temperatures, which should help your greens stick around a little bit long, longer. Because um, one of the things that you talk about in the book is that plants are a lot like us. They don't want to be shocked. They they want they want transitions to be gradual, and that's why with the pre-day treatment I talked about starting two hours before the sun comes up to, to raise the temperature in your greenhouse because you could probably raise it you could probably get it up to, to whatever temperature you wanted your daytime temperature to be faster than that, but it would be more of a shock to the plants. And so the more the more shocks that your plants have, the more likely they're going to say, "All right, I'm done. I'm making seeds," you know, and and start bolting and getting out of there. So. So even uh, even unheated growers, um, that might be something. If you're up before the sun comes up, you could you could roll up the sides and and actually that's that's one example that of one thing that I would do to try to minimize the amount of, of humidity because once again I was I was growing fruiting crops in unheated houses so so I didn't I didn't have that luxury most of the time of raising the temperature um, before it went up itself. But what I could do, which may sound counterintuitive in a way, is is to roll up the sides before the sun came up. Because I figured by the, the very early hours of the morning, your hoop house is probably very close to the nighttime temperature anyway. So you're not losing much heat to, to roll up the sides. And you're letting out a bunch of stale air and, and reducing that temperature spike. So those, those would be my advice for um, trying to keep your greens stick around and manage your temperature and humidity. Awesome. I know, th- I know that'll be an advantage for a lot of people that are listening to, to just go in with kind of that, that one little quick tip. I think... I think what you said is actually really important and, you know, kind of runs a little bit counter to what we're oftentimes thinking of 
in the spring because, you know, we're thinking about wanting things to be warming up in that greenhouse. But now we're talking about keeping things cool and, and sort of taking some active measures to manage those spring crops. I'm imagining that, you know, open things up in the morning and then you might roll those sides back down or at least at least not leave them open all the way as things heat up outdoors during the day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the kind of thing that you you would do as as needed, you know, depending on how overcast or not it was throughout the day. I want to pivot here away from talking about the greenhouses and I want to talk a little bit about growing for market because I actually think your experience growing for market is really interesting and is similar to what a lot of people are facing when they talk about doing farm succession, you know, transferring farm ownership from one person to another because you know, growing for market, you said 25 years under Lynn Bozinski's ownership and management. And I don't know about the rest of the world, but I really closely identified growing for market with Lynn, you know, and I did a lot of writing for the magazine at one point, you know, I've, I've been in communication with Lynn as a workshop organizer and, and in other, other capacities and just, you know, wow, I always thought growing for market, Lynn Bozinski. And, and now I'm thinking growing for market, Andrew Mefford, What's it been like taking over a business that was so strongly identified with somebody else? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Chris, because every everybody knew Lynn because she just did it for such a long time and, and she was such a presence in the magazine. And she she did she did a lot of writing for that magazine over the years. And so um I I guess it has been a little bit of an adjustment, but I feel like well, most people have have stuck with it and, and I really don't want it to be about me. I want to be the person who's 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 making it happen every month. But much like your own podcast, Chris, is really the product of, of the people that you have on it. What I want to do is that connect growers because many of us are out in rural areas where, you know, may or may not have neighbors who are do, doing similar things. And the, t- the transfer of ideas and technology is, is just so important because, because farmers are such innovative, uh, inventive people. I don't want the thing that one person is doing somewhere uh, on their farm just to stay there. I want, you know, I want to help transfer ideas when people want to share them, which I find is most of the time because I think the most direct market growers are very um, sharing, uh, giving people, and they they care about what they're doing for more than just just their own business. And, and because I found people to be very forthcoming about uh, you know their techniques and what they're doing, and and um, in a way, I think that's. That's one of the reasons that, that your your podcast is great, Chris, because not everybody's a writer. You know, not, not everybody who's doing something that other people should hear about um, is is in a position to say write an article for Growing for Market. And so that's why I'm glad you're doing what you're doing as far as getting in touch with these people. And 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 that's how I look at my job is I'm I'm trying to find the people who can write about it. Or as as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, one of the things that Lynn wanted me to do was keep writing for the magazine. Um, even even while, while I'm I'm really doing the editor, so I think I look at my job as I really should not be visible for most of the time. I should be I should be the person who's in the back and just making it come together. And most of the time, people don't really even think about how it came together. It's just like, oh hey, my growing for market came <laughs> came in the mail, or you know, I got an email that that my download is ready. Because if I'm doing my job well, people shouldn't be thinking about how it comes together. They should be thinking, oh great, another. Uh, you know, informative, practical uh, version of, of growing for market. So I really don't want it to be about me, ex- except when I'm writing something in the magazine. I think it's really more about the relationships that I can cultivate with people who um, who are out there. Because of course, I, I can't be everywhere at once. But I know a lot of growers and extension agents and and all the different people who are are, are active in direct market farming. 
and uh, you know I want to build the relationships so that when somebody is on a farm tour or at a presentation and sees something really inventive or really useful, that they'll say, "Hey, Andrew, I saw this great thing. Um, you, this should really be in your magazine, and you know, write write about it or um, put me on the trail so that I can track it down and, and get it in the magazine." Uh, one way or the other. So I definitely want to give Lynn credit for having the vision. So, I mean, that's a long time, 25 years. So, so 2016 uh, was our 25th year. So, so we're in the beginning of our 26th year now. So I think Lynn definitely deserves um, to be associated with the magazine as, as both the founder and having, having run it for 25 years. I mean, that's, that's awesome. And, and I just can't thank her enough for, for thinking of me when she wanted to pass it on because um, it, it's pretty much my favorite publication. So I thought you, that's, that's another one of those opportunities. You're never going get, to get offered uh, the opportunity to take over your favorite publication uh, again in life. And so that's one of the reasons, <laughs> even though I, re- I really liked my job at Johnny's, it was, it was very interesting. You know, I left that to, to do this. Also, because I think growing for market is a really in, in important resource for growers. But I think that, that direct market farming is such a specific thing. You know, it's just, it's so different from uh, commodity farming or, or other things. And there's so much development as far as marketing, business, um, and just, just the growing techniques. All that stuff has come such a long way over, over the past 25 years, over the past um, the time uh, that the magazine has been around. In fact, that's roughly the period when the USDA started keeping track of the number of farmers markets, right? I, I believe it was uh, 20, 21 years ago that they started keeping keeping track of the number of farmers markets. And over that time, the number of farmers markets has quintupled. I mean, that's been, that's been a huge change. The, you know, those are, those are the people that we're writing for, right? It's, it's people who are doing farmers markets, DSA stands, um, local wholesaling like we were. And so, the fact that that audience has quintupled and is, is continuing to grow um, is, is just is just huge news. And I think that that just the fact that the, the landscape has changed that much means that it's it's a different thing to be to be growing for market in 2017 than it was you know in the late 90s. And so so that's what we need to be, and we just need to be in touch and, and writing about the right things. And that's why almost almost any time I when I, I get to talk to a subscriber. Or someone who's interested in subscribing, as I say, let me know if you have if you have ideas. Um, you know, I'm not asking for you to write the article, but I'm always trying to figure out what people want to hear about and say, just just let me know if there's something that you wish we were writing about. That's what I need to know because that's what we need to be to be writing about. So um, I'm very excited about the opportunity to steward growing for market into to a second. 25 years and, and just keep it an important resource for growers, just like it was for us uh, coming up in the direct market growing world. Well, and I know when I first heard about it back in 1993, I was working at Harmony Valley Farm in Viroqua, Wisconsin, and Richard DeWild came to me and he said, okay, you have to read this magazine and you have to subscribe to this magazine. And I think I've had a subscription pretty much the whole time since then, whether I was actively farming for myself or not, because it was such a, a fertile source of information. So, Andrew, uh, we've talked a lot about growing the actual crops, but most greenhouse crops, I think it's fair to say, are are grown from transplants. And and of course, you know, here we are uh, going live late February, early March. I haven't decided yet, but we're we're going to be we're going to be talking to a lot of folks while they're working in their greenhouses, growing transplants. And are there things that you do differently to grow transplants for protected culture 
than what you would do to grow something for outside? Yeah, yeah, there are some things. Um, as I mentioned, we, we are heavier into seedlings now than than we once were. And so we do go through a lot of potting mix and we, we do use a compost-based uh, soil mix to, to start all the plants. And um, we've been using, we've also been adding a mycorrhizal inoculant um, the, the past few years. And we may not even see the benefit of that so much in our in our own transplants, but we figure that's something that we can we can pass on to our customers as well. Because if the if the if the plug is 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 inoculated with beneficial mycorrhizal fungi, then that that should um, grow out into the, the area and and help the plant wherever someone plants it. But um, one thing that uh, that definitely is is a little different is that a lot of greenhouse growers um, grow. They are transplants much larger than um, than than the transplants that are to be used for field production. For one thing, um, because the transplants for protected culture, they are not going to have to deal with as much wind and rain and you know all the the rough weather. Since at least they're they're under plastic and and even winds are usually uh, mitigated somewhat by the the structure. Um, you can you can grow a bigger plant. Um, because it's not going to go out and, and you know, you're not going to have this big floppy plant that immediately gets hit with wind and, and strong sunlight. And, and that's another uh, good point to make. Uh, even the clearest coating filters out some light. And so the light isn't isn't as harsh in a protected culture as well. So I would say and that also contributes to earliness is that if you can plant a bigger plant, of course, uh, you're going to be closer to, to the harvest date. And I, I'm talking particularly about the fruiting crops there. I would say transplants for leafy crops are more similar to, to field crops. What are the factors that you think are the most important in producing a really high quality transplant? Well, that's a good question. I'd say that having good temperature would be one thing as far as both not too cold, but also not too hot. Um, because one thing that we've found is that if you grow the transplants really hot and with a lot of fertility, they can be too vegetative. They can be too lush. and um, not, not only be susceptible to pests as far as we all know that aphids really love that lush, soft growth. So plants that have been grown too hot and with too much fertility uh, are really not going to be as strong as plants that have been grown with more moderate levels of both heat and fertility. And so I will say I do in the in the book, I have temperature graphs for each crop that I deal with at each stage of growth. So there's a graph for germination, there's a graph for tra- uh, a graph for transplant raising, et cetera. So I have pretty specific recommendations of what, what you know, a good temperature would be. Not too hot, not too cold for, for all the various crops that you'd be producing. And also good, good light because whether due to natural light conditions being too low or for whatever reason, uh, your plastic is getting cloudy or, or any reason really, if, if your plants don't have enough light, they're going to be getting leggy. And so taking that into consideration is, is important. In fact, that became really apparent to me a few years back because we had inherited some equipment that was, was seized from a, a marijuana grow operation. And um, it was going to be destroyed as, as part of the law enforcement course of action. And, and it was we were offered some grow lights and we had never used them before. And we were like, well, you know, they're just going to be destroyed anyway. We'll take them. And so we put some grow lights on some of our plants, but we didn't have enough for all of our plants that we are propagating transplants. And then the ones that are the grow lights were the stockiest, greenest, best looking transplants that I've ever seen. And so that, that really, that's one of those things that, that going outside of our normal course of action 
uh, reinforce something that we knew anyway, that, that we should either, not so much that we should be using lights, but that if we, we could get the plants as much light as possible, um, that, that they would be better. That, yeah, you know, the, the, the plants that were getting um, supplemental light were beautiful. And so those would be those would be my basic suggestions for growing good transplant, and, and it really really just comes down to knowing, you know, what what your optimal conditions should be, and, and figuring out how to how to um, implement them. Which that's that's the tricky thing, right? It's figuring out how to implement them because it's easier said than done, right? You know, you can write it down in the book, say, oh yeah, the temperature should be like this, and as much light as possible. Where implementing that may mean real system changes on your farm. You know, it may mean uh, changing the plastic that's 60 years old on the greenhouse, buying a new heater, uh, getting getting base heat, building a germinator, something like that. You know, those are the kinds of changes that that are 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 very um, possible for for growers. But it also does take some doing and possibly some some um, some investment of, of money to to make it happen. And with that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. We're going to get a quick word from a sponsor, and then we'll be right back. This lightning round is brought to you by Farm Commons. Strong, resilient, sustainable farm businesses are built on a solid legal foundation. Geared for the direct consumer and organic producer, Farm Commons' free legal guides and tutorials provide a practical and realistic resource for farmers. In my consulting work, I often need to deepen my understanding of the ins and outs of the legal side of things, and Farm Commons is always and that's not an exaggeration, the first place I turn. Whether I'm looking for information on building a legally resilient CSA program, the ins and outs of paying in-kind wages, or just trying to get a better understanding of how to really work with regulators, Farm Commons boils the information down to the nuts and bolts of what you really need to know without having to wade through the regulations. Visit farmcommons.org to access a wealth of information about this important part of your farm business. All right, and we're back with the lightning round. So, Andrew Mefford, what's your... Normally, we'd ask, what's your favorite tool on the farm? But I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite tool in the greenhouse? Oh, um, I like these little uh, little, little handheld pruners from a Japanese company called Sabotin, S-A-B-O-T-E-N. And they're available from a few different retailers. Um, in fact, I had written an article a few years back in Growing for Market about hoop house tools. And... Um, these are these are one of those things that are just so well designed. Uh, so first of all, uh, for people who aren't familiar, they fit in the palm of your hand. Because a lot of times I find myself doing cluster pruning or, or other leaf pruning or things that's really tight in the, the plants. I'm almost like feel like I'm doing bonsai sometimes. Uh, my wife tells me that I I'm it's too much like orchard work, you know, which I guess I I like going in there and and pruning and trellising. And when I've, when I've gone through the whole greenhouse, it feels like I've set things right. And so I like these pruners because they're so compact that you can get them in anywhere small and um, they fit on your ring finger. So you, so you can flip them out of the way and wear them like a ring when you're using your hands and then flip them back into position. And they have a, a safety that's off, operated by your thumb. So they, they're true one-handed operation and just open them up, make the cuts you need, then put the safety back on your thumb, flip it back around, and you're ready to work with your hands again. So I'm looking online, and I think what you're talking about is these, it's a Sabotin Harvest Scissors. It's a model 1318. Yeah, sure, Chris. Uh, back in August of 2013, I wrote an article for Going for Market about uh, my favorite tools for the hoop house. And so that, that one that I particularly like is the is the Sabotin Compact Harvest Scissors, model 1318. And uh, last time I checked, they were carrying at Johnny's and also at uh, Purple Mountain Tools, purpletools.net. And so um, I will make that article public. 
Um, as you may know, most of our, our articles in the archive, uh, the archive is one of the features of our of our um, subscription. So, so um, it's not uh, normally available to the public. But I'll I will make um, I will make the article that I wrote in August of, of 2013 available so so people can see my thoughts in, in, in greater depth um, there. You could go to www.growingformarket.com and and uh, just you could put in the search box uh, hoop house tools and that should bring the the um, the article up and and actually while we're on the su- the subject of the magazine I, I did uh, make a promo code for your listeners Chris so they can get twenty uh, percent off of any subscription uh, right now uh, w- using the code podcast just p o d c a s t is not case sensitive. Uh, if you type it in the website, that should give you 20% off the subscription of your choice. And it's open to new and existing subscribers. Unfortunately, we can't apply it retroactively, but if you do, if you are an existing subscriber and you want to take advantage of it, um, if you, if you do um, buy a, a, a renewal subscription at the discounted rate, it'll just tack it on to the end of your current subscription. So that's available to anybody who listens to the podcast and wants to take advantage of that. Awesome. Thank you. And we'll have that link in the show notes as well as the reminder about that, about that code. And we'll, we'll do a link directly to that article as well. These Sabotin harvest scissors, these are really interesting. And I know you said the way you described them, you said, oh, they got a little loop for your thumb and you kind of switch them out of the way. But I mean, they're kind of a crazy looking tool. Um, yeah. They're an example of just really nice design. You know, it's clear that they, they, um, they designed it, got people to use them, I think, and get feedback, and they really work well for a very specific uh, purpose. All those, all those little cuts, and they just, they're just very compact and ergonomic, and don't take up much space. They're, they're fun to use. And I really like that idea that you don't have to put them down. I think that's such an important element for a tool. And I remember reading about that in Elliot Coleman's first book, The Organic Grower, and and being like, oh yeah, that's you know what a great idea, but. In a lot of times, that's it's really not possible to not put your tool down or not put it back in the sheath. But it's really clear that these are designed so you could do several things with your hands with this tool still on your thumb and then be able to come right back and do some snipping. That's really I want some for my garden just because they're so neat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the principles of greenhouse growing right there is just being as efficient as possible. If you can do something without putting it down that's better than having to put it down every time and because right a lot of the greenhouse things that i'm talking about you're doing over and over again right uh you know you're pruning however many plants are in your greenhouse you're doing it that many times right and so getting each pruning down to its minimum amount of time even though i actually like doing that stuff i don't want to spend any more time on it than i have to and so that kind of stuff just both having efficient tools and just doing Doing the job in the most efficient way is it really adds up when you when you multiply it hundreds or potentially thousands of times. Now we know that tomatoes are your favorite crop to grow, and you've already had a chance to talk about those a little bit. What's your second favorite crop to grow? I, I also really enjoy cucumbers, and although part of that might be from <laughs> they have a lot of similarities to the way that tomatoes grow, and so that that's one of my points of the book is that if you learn these vining fruiting crop systems, which a lot of people are probably going to think of as tomato systems, and that's fine to think of them that way. The skills that you need to grow the, all of these vining and fruiting crops, they're all very similar. And so if you know how to grow a tomato, in uh, tre- even trellis in the field, or even better trellis in protected culture, you can transfer a lot of those skills over to another crop. You know, you can take your tomato skills and apply them uh, peppers or 
cucumbers or, or eggplant, which I think is a great opportunity just because eggplant is cultivated in protected culture so much less than all these other crops that I think there's a lot of, there's, that's, that's a crop that people um, are not extending the season on so much. And so, so smaller growers can diversify their offerings. So they have a nice mix of stuff on the farmer's market stand or the CSA stand by throwing some eggplant even in a, into a tomato greenhouse or into a tomato and cucumber greenhouse. But um, got to say one of the other things that, I, that uh, if you, if you're going to make me pick the second favorite crop, it might be salad mix. And, and one thing that really changed the game for me on salad mix was the one cut varieties, which if people don't know what I'm talking about, there, there are a range of salad mix that is, uh, has been bred to be produced from heads. In fact, there are several companies that are breeding these and they're, they're known variously as Salanova, Easy Leaf. There might be a multi-cut out there. So what it is, is it's, it's a head of lettuce that's designed to be broken down in, into, into salad mix because what it is, even though the lettuce is, is more or less full-size head, all the leaves are exactly the same size and they, um, they're all attached at one point. And so what you can either do is harvest them. You can cut a little higher in the field and have all the leaves just fall off, more like when you're cutting baby leaves. Or one thing that I really like about them is that you can cut them as heads and then take them back to a processing area and, and quickly uh, process them into to salad mix at that point. And, and one of the reasons is because I, I never liked bending over to harvest baby leaves. And so we heard about these a, a few years back and we started using them after we had tried them, we, we changed all of our salad mix production on my farm of lettuce. We switched completely from baby leaf lettuce over to these, these one-cut type lettuces. And part of it is because we are already making a lot of transplants. And that was a way for us to get more of, out of our protected culture for the leafy crops. You were asking how to get the most out of the leafies. And I would say that these are one way because you have to go to the trouble of making a transplant. Um, although I guess you could direct seed them too. But... But one of the ideas is that with protected culture, you really only have a limited amount of space, right? Uh, it's very precious real estate here, whether it's a greenhouse or hoop house, um, it's expensive to make that space. And so so one of our ways to get more leafies out of our protected space was to grow the, um, you know, we use the Salanova, but there are, other, there are other types that are also really nice out there. Because what we could do is um, you get a much higher yield using the one cut lettuces because you transplant it out there. and in about the number of days where you would have baby leaves, if you were direct seeding, you have a full head of lettuce. The yield is much higher. And the other thing we noticed is that the places where we were selling our salad mix, people were just complimenting us and telling us that we had the best salad mix because, um, because for one thing, you get a lot more crunch because you're, it, it's, it's a, what it is is it's a mature head of lettuce with these tiny little leaves on it. So the crunch is much better because if you think about it, though, baby leaves are kind of, flimsy and floppy um, and they taste great but they don't they don't have much crunch whereas when you're harvesting the uh, the mature heads they have a much better crunch and they also have better shelf life for two reasons for one thing because mature lettuce leaves have just better shelf life than baby leaves that's just a, the fact of the matter and the other thing is that that um, when, when we were were doing baby leaf salad production we were tr trying to get multiple cuts right because it doesn't it doesn't really pencil out to plant the seeds and um, harvest them only once for baby leaves and then, and then till them in for another round. So we would try to get two or three cuts out of our baby leaves. And inevitably what happens, even if you try to cut up, up above the old leaves, inevitably you're going to cut some of the ragged tips from the, the, the first or the second cut. And those things 
are what rots first. Um, and, and there's just there's just no way to get them all out of there. And that, that's what we realized is that even if the leaves that we meant to cut were not breaking down and had good shelf life, what was dragging the whole bag down is that we had these little bits from the previous cuts. And so since with the one-cut type lettuces, you're just cutting the, the head once. You don't have ragged edges that you're cutting from previous cuttings. It really, um, we also saw the shelf life of our bag lettuces go up a lot. You know, I'd say number two would be one-cut lettuces just because that's something that, you know, really transformed our salad mix game when those were, were implemented. Like I said, over the course of just a year or two, they work so much better, at least for our system. And, you know, I know some, some people are really are already set up and really tooled in for growing baby leaves. So I'm not saying everybody's going to do this, but, but a small farm like ours where we were, we were just able to um, turn those beds over um, so quickly as soon as we had cut a bed of, of one-cut lettuces, we would go in with transplant stuff for the next round. And, and it, it really helped us just get more production of a very high-quality crop out of the same area as before. Awesome. And finally, Andrew, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I would say to really um, pencil out the cost and things. And, and that's that's uh, that's really boring advice in a way because it's, it's probably the kind of things the kind of thing that people hear a lot and also because there's a lot of talk these days about yeah determining your return on investment and all that kind of stuff but i think that was not as prevalent back in the day you know not even that long ago maybe 15 years ago or so about when i was first really starting out thinking about um, actually farming as a career people were not talking about the numbers so much and so I feel like a lot of our early decisions were just made on gut instinct. You know, we thought, well, we could buy this thing. We could probably pay for it. You know, this is probably a good decision. And that's, I, I, I don't need, of all people, I don't need to tell you, Chris, um, I know you know all about that stuff. That's, that's not a good way to make the decision. So that's one trend that I feel like I've, I've seen a growing for market, which I've, I've talked to, I've talked to some people about is that I think, I think you go farther, farther back in in the archives, for example, if you looked at what was being talked about at the very beginning of growing for market, I think there was more about just just the raw basics of growing, you know, fertility, variety, uh, equipment, and stuff like that. And I think that as as uh, the direct market farming has has matured, um, we've we I'm still trying to have a lot of stuff about the nuts and bolts of growing, but also have a lot about marketing. Because I realized that you know it's one thing to grow it, and I feel like there's 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 lots of good information out there about growing, and I I hope there continues to be more. But then, okay, so you've grown it, so you need to become a savvy marketer, right? And you need to figure out how to, uh, you know, you could grow the greatest stuff, but if 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 you're taking it to the wrong people or people don't want to buy it, you're not going to stay in business. So there's the marketing, and then there's the business aspect. You know, it's not exciting in a way. It doesn't sound exciting, but it, it's so important to be business like, even though. You probably didn't get into farming for spreadsheets and, and stuff like that. You know, you don't have to use spreadsheets, but, but it's important to find out uh, what a financially sound decision is. Because I think I think we definitely wasted a lot of money on some bad decisions over the years. Or, or just, you know, we, we weren't strategic. And so we, we, we did. We made decisions based on our gut. And, and sometimes we were wrong. And, and a lot of times it was it were things that if we knew how to look at them, you know, more like business people, um, that we would, it would have been pretty easy for us to make a, a better decision. So I'd say, um, in fact, you know, there's some there's some great books like Richard Wiswell's The Organic Farmer's Business Handbook, and a new one that just came out called The Farmer's Office um, by Julia Shanks. That um, you know, particularly uh, 
Julia's book comes to mind because it's new, but um, both of those books are um, just are filled with great, great ideas for, for farmers who are, who are trying to be good business people and, and particularly don't want to spend a lot of time on the business. You know, it's like, it's like really what you, what you need to know and a lot, not, not a bunch of what you don't. That would be my advice for myself 10 years back in time is spend a little, spend a little more um, time on the, the business side of things. Andrew, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. I, I, thanks so much for, for having me on. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 109 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at Farmer to Farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Mefford. That's M-E-F-F-E-R-D. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Growing for Market, where you can get 20% off your subscription with the code PODCAST at checkout. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please tell them how much you appreciate the support of a resource that you value. And you can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. And speaking of help, I'd like to start a tractor in thanks to Mike Kwasniewski and Ian Weiss for their support of the show through Patreon, a way for fans to provide ongoing support for the podcast. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show and through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.